Osibina una numeye ende muna bobe Osibina koko yene po enya ne wamina Oseya pembembe Hi everybody who listens to Future Primitive I have a really happy feeling about uh, talking with Dr. Christian De Quincey today. Christian De Quincey, PhD, is a philosopher and author who teaches consciousness, spirituality, and cosmology at universities and colleges in the United States and Europe. He is also an international speaker on consciousness. His books include Radical Nature, The Soul of Matter, Understanding Consciousness Through Relationship, Deep Spirit, Cracking the Noetic Code, a novel of visionary science and spirituality, Consciousness from Zombies to Angels, The Shadow and the Light of Knowing Who You Are, His Radical Consciousness Trilogy focuses on the nature of reality, the nature of consciousness and knowledge, and exploring the final frontier of consciousness. So is there anything you'd like to add to this introduction before we begin our conversation? Well, it might be, it might be good just to, to let your, your listeners know that I'm also the, the founder of the Wisdom Academy, um, where I, it's an online Academy where I um, work with students and clients um, in, in personalized programs in consciousness studies and mentorship and coaching in consciousness. So that's at um, um, www.thewisdomacademy.org, and it can also be accessed through my website, um, christiansquincy.com. So, um, other than that, um, I think we can just see how our conversation unfolds, which Good. Us down. Good, and, and I might say you also publish a newsletter to which people can subscribe. That's correct, yes, yes, that's good to mention that. I also have a, a newsletter called IQ Noetic News, um, that people can subscribe to that from, it's free, and, and people can subscribe to that from my website. So my first question to you, Christian, would be, is the universe imbued with meaning? Oh, okay. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Let's just dive right into it. Um, Yes, let's do it. um, Absolutely, I would say. And and my reasoning for that is that... um, what we call consciousness, our awareness, our sentience, an ability to know and to feel and to make choices, that that's intrinsic to the nature of reality itself. The reality already comes with, with sentience, with consciousness, with experience built right into it. And, and wherever there is consciousness, there is, there is meaning. And in my, in my work, I have a, um, a, a pretty precise definition of what I mean by meaning. And so for, for me, meaning is the experience fit between self 
between self and not-self. So let me just unpack that a little bit. The degree to which we feel we fit into the universe, the degree to which we feel we fit into our world, into our family, into our community, indeed into our own bodies, to those degrees um, our lives have meaning. To the extent that we feel we don't fit in, either into our own bodies, into our families, our communities, our, our nation, or the planet, or our species, whatever it might be, to that extent, um, we are a misfit. We don't, uh, the universe, our world, our lives lack meaning to that extent. So, since the universe um, obviously fits into itself, um, my conclusion is that yes, um, the universe experiences itself fitting into itself and, and therefore is imbued with meaning um, at every level. Okay. Um, you have um, uh, re-edited your, um, your quintessential work, uh, Radical Nature. And um, so I would ask you to say a few words about the book. And then perhaps you could talk to us about how your own vision, your own story... Um, has changed since the publication of the first publication of that book. Okay, um, well, I'll take the second um, um, part of the question first, and it's easy to address that in, 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 a, in a sense, in essence. Um, nothing, certainly nothing significant has changed from the first edition to the second edition of the book. Um, so essentially, there won't be any further um, or different ideas in the second edition than in the first edition. Um, and the reason there's a second edition is because the, the publisher of the first edition um, uh, publishing it, and so another publisher, the one who handles my other books, decided to take it on and, and republish it. So essentially, the second edition is for all practical purposes, the same as the first edition. Okay. Um, what it's about, essentially, radical nature is um, it's my attempt to look at the question of how is mind related to the physical world? How is consciousness related to the, the world of physical energy? Or another way of putting that question is how are mind and body related? How are they connected? And and so that's essentially what that book looks at. It um, analyzes the four major worldviews of the mind-body connection, which are uh, dualism, materialism, idealism, and panpsychism. And the first three, I will include some detail and show how dualism has a, an inherent limitation because it splits mind and body apart and has no way of explaining how they could ever come together. Materialism um, has a fatal flaw in that it basically starts with the assumption that um, the nature of reality is made up of purely physical stuff and that what we call mind, experience, or consciousness is something that emerges out of the evolutionary complexity of this dead intention matter. Um, but there's no way that anybody can explain how that jump could happen from purely intention dead stuff to matter that now tingles with the spotted spirit of the spotted consciousness. 
So materialism faces what's called the hard problem, which is to explain how it would be possible, even in principle, for dead matter to produce um, beings with consciousness and awareness and choice. So materialism gets the thumbs down because it can't um, solve that particular problem. And then idealism, and there are two versions of idealism. One version says that um, it's really the, the uh, opposite of materialism. It says the ultimate nature of reality is pure spirit or pure consciousness, pure mind. And, and what we call matter, real matter, is something that emanates from pure spirit. Well, just as the materialists cannot explain how mindless matter could ever produce real mind, idealists cannot explain how matterless spirit could ever produce real matter. And so, uh, philosophically, that particular view gets the thumbs down as well. But there's another view um, in idealism called the Maya hypothesis, which basically says that matter is just an illusion. There is no such thing as real matter, that in the end, the ultimate reality is always and only consciousness or spirit. Mm-hmm. And what we call matter is just an illusion. And of course, that's a pretty safe position to take, logically, because there's no way to step outside of consciousness of the mind to indicate a reality that exists beyond the mind. So everything we know by necessity, we know only in consciousness. So everything we know about the physical world, about the world of matter, shows up as, as content in our consciousness. However, even though that particular um, worldview is logically um, irrefutable, it faces a different kind of problem, is that um, at least in, in my experience, and, and just about everyone I've spoken with, anybody who claims that matter is just an illusion doesn't live in the world in a way consistent with that claim. Everybody who claims that matter is an illusion wears clothes, lives in houses, avoids cars on the freeway, eats food, drinks liquid. In other words, they treat the physical world, the material world, as though it's real, even though they claim it's unreal. Mm-hmm. It's the performance does not match what they claim, and in philosophy, um, not walking your talk is called um, a performance of contradiction. So the performance is, is contradicted by what they claim, their actions in the world. So for that reason, because um, uh, that version of idealism that says matter is just an illusion encounters this pragmatic problem that nobody actually lives in the world in a way consistent with that claim, um, we're then left with the, the fourth option to um, explain the relationship between body and mind, between spirit and matter, and that's called panpsychism. And panpsychism takes the view that, the, that both matter and mind are real, mm-hmm. but they are inseparable. Um, they can never be separate. So whereas dualism splits them apart, panpsychism says, no, they always go together. And that means they always get together all the way down, that at every level of the physical world, there is some degree of some trace of consciousness or awareness and ability to make choices. So at the level of our cells, at the level of molecules, at the level of atoms or subatomic particles, consciousness is there too. Choices are being made at every level. And it's because of that particular basic assumption that consciousness goes all the way down is why I would answer your first question by saying, yes, the universe is intrinsically meaningful because it, it, it tingles, it ripples with consciousness at every level. How do you know 
that uh, uh, consciousness is alive all the way down and uh, that uh, how do you know what you know? <laughs> yeah. I've, yeah well, I've been reading your work all day and I just thought I'd ask you that silly question. That's a great question. Good. So I, I know it in, in, in different ways. In, in my second book, Radical Knowing, uh, the subtitle of that is Understanding Consciousness Through Relationship. In, in Radical Knowing, I um, point out that there are um, different ways of knowing the world around us. Um, I call them the four gifts of knowing, and each one is valid. Mm-hmm. So we have the gift of our senses. Uh, for knowing the physical, objective world, we have the gift of reason and language for figuring things out intellectually with the main of intellectual mind. But we also have the, the gift of feeling and alternative states of consciousness. And in addition to that, we also have the gift of, you know, of intuition that is most um, effectively accessed in sacred silence. And I can come back and talk about those a little bit later. Yeah. To answer your question, how do I know that consciousness is all the way down? Well, um, putting on my philosopher's hat and using the gifts of reason and, and, and language uh, to figure that out, here's, here's how I arrive at that conclusion, is that I know, at least in my case, and I make the same assumption for you and, and every other human being, in fact, for every other animal, in fact, not just animals, every living being and even non-living beings, that since I am a being with consciousness and I am embodied, my body is made up of cells and molecules and atoms. And I have the ability to be aware of the field and to make choices. Then, coherently, the only way to account for that fact, the fact of my unconsciousness and the fact that I am embodied, means that everything that I am made of, all my cells, all my molecules and all my atoms, must similarly have a degree of embodiment, their own physicality, and an ability to be aware of their own consciousness. If that wasn't the case, it would mean that at some level of my makeup, either at the level of my cells, or the level of my molecules, or the level of my atoms, there wouldn't be any consciousness. And that would mean that somehow or other, those mindless bits of atoms or molecules came together and produced this organism that now has consciousness. Well, that's exactly the problem I was talking about earlier that faces materialism. It says that consciousness of mind can um, emerge from mindless matter. That nobody can even begin to explain how that could be possible. So given the fact that I know I am a conscious being, and I am embodied, and the only way to account for that fact is that whatever I am made of, all my cells, all my molecules, all my atoms, all my subatomic particles, must themselves also have some degree of embodiment, some physicality, and, um, and, and some ability to be aware and to feel. So since the molecules that make up my body aren't anything particularly special, every atom and molecule found in my body is found elsewhere in nature, there aren't any special human elements. So if all my atoms have some degree of consciousness, and there's nothing special about my particular atoms, then all atoms must have some degree of consciousness. It makes no sense to say that some atoms have consciousness and others don't. Mm-hmm. And so if every atom has consciousness, then again, on the principle that you don't get something from nothing, then whatever the atoms are made of must also have some degree of consciousness. The 
protons and the electrons and the neutrons. The consciousness must go all the way down since we are made of that stuff. We are made of quanta, we are made of subatomic particles, we are made of atoms, we are made of molecules and cells and so on. At every level, there must be both a degree of embodiment or what we call physicality and a degree of consciousness or awareness and ability to feel, to be able to make choices, to be aware of um, the, the world in some particular way. So that's, that's how I know that. I know it intellectual. I know it by reasoning through the, um, the facts of my own experience living in a world of which I am integrally a part of, that therefore um, everything in the world must be made up of the same I hear that your dog either agrees yeah. or disagrees with all of this. <laughs> well, of course, he might be agreeing. With yeah, he might be agreeing, might be disagreeing, actually. Who knows? Finally, somebody is saying what I've known all my life. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, I find this so much more fun and, uh, and musical and poetry than what that uh, dear Descartes told us, that yeah. everything is inanimate. Now, Christina, uh, uh, I would like to ask you, this is how the philosopher knows, but how, not but, and how does the shaman in you know that, it, that it's all alive? Yeah, or, or aliveness. I'm going to come to that. Um, okay. And so, so I, I know it intellectually. I know it by wearing my philosopher's hat. But I also know it through feeling, through the, the my, if you like, what I'm wearing my shaman's hat. So when I go out hiking in nature or just walking through the world, I can, if I pay attention, I can feel the presence of these other sentient beings around me, whether they're animals in the bushes um, or the redwood trees themselves, I can, I can feel their presence. Um, in my understanding, our bodies act like antennas, constantly picking up messages from the world around us. So the world is constantly streaming out messages full of meaning, and our bodies pick up those messages I like to think of our bodies as meaning processors. Mm -hmm. So our bodies are constantly on alert. Even though most of this happens unconsciously, we are picking up streams of messages and information from the world around us. And then our bodies process that meaning in a way that then connects us to the world around us. So I can move through the world and actually have what I call an intersubjective connection. That my subjectivity, my... Um, Conscious essence is in relationship, in a meaningful relationship with the consciousness of the other sentient beings around me, whether it's a dog or a cat or a uh, redwood tree um, or swimming with dolphins in the ocean. I can, I can experience that intersubjective connection, that, um, if you like, soul-to-soul -soul connection or spirit-to-spirit -spirit connection between sentient beings. So that's that's one other way I have of, of yes. knowing that uh, the world is is full of um, meaning and full of that consciousness goes all the way down. And so where 
I um, find that a conclusion that I reach um, using my philosophical um, ways of knowing match what I also know through my shamanic ways of knowing, through my feelings. So when my intellect matches what my feeling tells me, that's pretty good evidence to me that I'm on the right track. And and so um, I'm I'm pretty strongly persuaded that consciousness is not the sub um, anomaly, some epiphenomenon that just happens to um, be squirted out of brains through some random process um, that happened over hundreds of millions of years of evolution, billions of years of evolution. But it's not a random process that just happened. It's actually part of the, um, the process itself. Consciousness is intrinsic to the evolutionary process. Um, I sometimes, um, when people ask me to define consciousness, I usually try to avoid giving a definition um, and prefer to just clarify what I mean by consciousness. But the closest I would come to offering a definition of consciousness is to say this, is that consciousness is the intrinsic ability of matter energy to feel, to know, and purposefully direct itself. So... Consciousness is intrinsic to matter, intrinsic to energy, and what we call evolution is um, is matter exploring its own potential. But the grand adventure of evolution is consciousness directing itself through the world, exploring its own possibilities and potentials, and of course, we are part of, of that process. Could we say that consciousness is awareness making love to itself? that too. Thanks for inspiring it. Uh, Christian, um, would you like to say a little more about that or shall I go to uh, my next question? Well, um, yeah, I think we move on to the the next question and if we cycle back onto this topic of different ways of knowing and embodiment, I'm sure that will happen naturally. I really like the the piece you wrote about um, when you were reading this book by Mr. Sorensen about um, about pre-conquest consciousness and post-conquest consciousness, uh, socio-sensual awareness, and uh, that post-conquest awareness uh, is confrontational. And uh, I'd love you to talk about that.
the world that uh, one of the things he noticed is that what was common to tribal peoples was that their way of knowing in the world is based on feeling and relationships of being in relationship with other people with the natural environment around them this was their way of their way of truth their way of knowing what is real in the world it's based on feeling and and, and relationship mm-hmm then he talked about a very different way of knowing that came from the European tradition, the European Enlightenment tradition, um, where knowing is based on logic and reasoning and dialectic. So in this particular um, Western way of knowing, we call it, um, knowledge or truth is arrived at by one person presenting um, his or her truth, and then somebody else presenting something different to that, perhaps even opposite to that. And so there's a a conflict, there's an inevitable challenge and conflict involved in the meeting of minds in this Western sense. And the idea is that out of the dialectical clash of these different perspectives, some new thesis will emerge that advances uh, knowledge and and, uh, movement toward truth. So that's essentially the, the... rational way of knowing it. It involves a certain intrinsic belligerence, if you like, a confrontational aspect to it. So let's go back to um, a few hundred years when the Europeans first arrived on the continent of of, uh, what we now call America. Um, The indigenous peoples were confronted by a new kind of mindset. And so as of course, we now historically refer to them as the conquistadors. And so what Sorensen decided to refer to these different modes of consciousness as pre-conquest consciousness, which was the consciousness that existed in the indigenous peoples before they were invaded by the Europeans, and post-conquest consciousness, which is the consciousness of the conquistadors who came from Europe and basically um, conquered the, the dominant way of knowing on this continent with um, with the European consciousness. What he what he pointed out is that because the indigenous way of knowing, the pre-conquest way of knowing, relies on feeling, and for them, truth is what feels good for the community. So that means that my motivation is for you to feel good, you being whoever I'm um, communicating with. And so that. If, if the community feels good for them, the world is right, and that's how they know they're, they're on the track to truth. The truth in the, in the dialectical sense, in the Western European sense, is very different. It's, as I said, it's pitching one perspective against another. And so when those two, when the pre-conquest indigenous way of knowing comes together with the Western post-conquest way of knowing, and the post-conquest way of knowing is... Um, questioning and probing and looking for, for, for weaknesses in the other's perspective, um, that is experienced by the indigenous mind in, in some ways as an attack, even if it isn't intended to be that way. And because the indigenous mind naturally wants the other to feel good, because that's part of that way of knowing, they will, according to Sorensen, they will inevitably yield to the dominant post-conquest rational way of knowing, that the feeling way of knowing always gives into and is always conquered by the dominant rational, domineering rational way of knowing. And um, and he basically made the case that in, in his studies in anthropology, he couldn't think of any 
situation where the reverse ever happened, where there was a meeting of these two different ways of knowing, and the way of knowing that one up was the indigenous way of knowing, that in every case, the indigenous way of knowing is vulnerable to suppression and even annihilation by the Western dominant logical intellectual way of knowing. Well, that really woke me up when I read his analysis, because I recognized that this doesn't just happen between um, a clash of cultures historically. It also happens contemporarily in, in, in human relationships. Um, at that conference, I was um, curious enough, I was giving a presentation on the topic of intersubjectivity, that, um, that who we are is, is created in our relationship. Um, and so the, the theme of that was very much aligned with Sorensen's um, uh, thinking. But what I realized was that in, in my own personal relationship, and particularly um, in, the, in my relationship with the, the woman I was living with at that time, um, she was a very spiritual woman who had... Um, some profound spiritual experiences. And in the early days of our relationship, she would be talking to me about describing some of these quite um, um, exotic experiences that she was having. And I was fascinated and found myself asking questions about um, what she was reporting to me. Um, but of course, being trained in philosophy, I was looking for precision in her responses to me. And frequently, when we would have these conversations, um, they would end in tears that she would get upset because she would feel I was probing and attacking her um, and, and in some ways disrespecting or, not, or invalidating her particular experiences, which of course was not my intention. And so I was shocked time and time again to find that, that just by engaging with her from a perspective of my own intellectual curiosity, was experienced by her as, as, as an attack in some way. And I couldn't understand that until I came across this paper by Sorensen. And then the light bulb flashed, and I realized, okay, that's what's happening. It's a clash of these two different mindsets, that I'm entering my conversation with her from the perspective of my post-conquest dialectical intellectual mindset, but she's engaging with me from a much more feeling-based, relational um, mode of consciousness. And just like what happened with the indigenous peoples when they first were um, invaded by the, by the Europeans, and their particular way of knowing was, was suppressed in many cases like that, in interpersonal relationships, the same dynamic happens. And so then I came to realize, when I began to give talks on this, after my talks um, frequently, uh, women would come up to me afterwards and thank me for having given voice to an experience that they've had throughout their lives, where either the, the husbands in their lives, or the brothers, or their fathers, or their bosses at work, um, in many cases the males in their lives, um, uh, seem to invalidate, they, they experience being invalidated by the, by the menfolk in their lives. And now they could understand why, that it's not that the men were to blame for this, it's that they were employing a particular way of knowing that intrinsically suppresses, even if it doesn't intend to, the feeling way of knowing. And then I realized afterwards that that same relationship also shows up in the relationship between adults and children, and between humans and other animals. Mm. 
And so it's very, very important for us to be aware of these different modes of consciousness, this pre-conquest feeling-based mode of consciousness that thrives on dialogue and relationship building and the dialectical post-conquest intellectual mode of consciousness that searches for truth based on dialectical confrontation and conflict. And um, it's not that one is bad and the other is good, but they are two very different ways of knowing. And what we need to do is to find a way that honors both of those. And for me, the resolution, what came out of all of this work, for me, eventually, um, was to realize that there need not be a split or a disconnect between feeling and rational thinking. And if, if we approach it differently, if we honor our own feeling-based ways of knowing, honor those, pay attention to those, and, then, and this usually comes through practices that can involve meditation or um, other forms uh, like Bohemian dialogue where we sit together in silence for, for hours, perhaps, and just observe what's happening in our bodies. We might literally feel um, the, the sensations in our bodies as we are engaging with other people. And then notice from those feelings, that as those feelings course through our system, they begin to bubble up into words and ideas and concepts. And that our thinking is always something that arises from a deeper layer of feeling. As long as we remain aware of and connected to the foundational feelings, and we give voice to that, then our reason is now being informed is in the service. Our reason then operates in the service of our feeling rather than something that tries uh, to dominate it. So part of my teaching these days is to um, encourage people, invite people, and train people to feel their thinking rather than just think their thoughts. Yes. Let me ask you this. Um, oh, why has reason trumped feeling for so long? And uh, could you elaborate even more on... I mean, this is why my website is called Future Primitive. Um, how we can bring these two things together into the future so that um, we don't destroy ourselves. Uh, is, is, there's reason, is reason, does reason always have a touch of violence? And does feeling uh, always have a touch of, um, of unreasonability? Uh, yeah, I mean, play with my question, if you will. Yeah, well, um, so again, I would say that, that no particular way of knowing um, is sufficient unto itself, and no particular way of knowing is, um, is bad or wrong. Each way of knowing has its function and usefulness. What matters is that we learn, first of all, to identify and recognize these different ways of knowing, and to know when it's appropriate to engage them and apply them. But even more so what's important is to not just cultivate these four different ways of knowing um, that I call the, the scientist gift of the, the senses, the philosopher's gift of, of, of reasoning yes. and language and logic, the 
shaman's gift of healing and alternative state of consciousness and the mystic's gift of intuition, access and sacred silence, that yes, we need to cultivate all of these different ways of knowing, but even more than that, it's important to integrate them, to know when and how to mix them in particular situations. So one example would be kind of a trivial example, although it's, it's also important and makes the point, is that if your um, if your objective is to balance your checkbook, it really doesn't help too much to get into a mystical state of consciousness or to just <laughs> feel good or feel bad about what what's there in your checkbook. What what works in that particular situation is to engage your philosophers with logical, rational, reasoning, intellectual mind and apply that to the task at hand. However, in, say, a family situation where there's a, a family budget involved, it's not just a matter of, um, of mathematics and arithmetic um, in terms of who gets to get into the, the family budget. There are now interpersonal relationships involved. And in that case, if you're now having a conversation with your spouse or with your children about the family budget, it now makes sense to include not just the rational um, uh, philosopher's way of, of engaging with the, with the situation, but also to feel your way into the situation, to feel what's important, what's relevant, what's meaningful to, the, to yourself and to the people that you're engaged with. So it's a question of, of developing awareness of, of first of all, the, 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 the ability to discern these differences in these different ways of knowing, to know when it's appropriate to apply a particular way of knowing to particular circumstances, and to know how to mix and integrate them in particular situations. Okay, well, I think that a good segue um, is that uh, um, to ask you to talk about the warrior and the sage, embodied intelligence, and uh, your collaboration with this martial arts coach, uh, Rodney King, whom you have mentored and with whom you've developed this uh, project. Okay, yes, that, that um, follows on nicely from what we're talking about. So one of the, the ways of knowing, of course, is embodied feeling. And if you like, it's the, the way of knowing of the, of the warrior, um, where the, uh, the sage is the way of knowing that integrates the, the, um, the philosopher's gift and the mystic's gift. Um, so I'm going to just pause for a moment, and I'll come back to talking mm-hmm. about um, my relationship with, with Rodney King in a moment. Okay. I just wanted to complete though, the, the yes. thought that, um, in, the, in that last question about, um, you, you mentioned that the title of your program is Future Primitive. And so how is it relevant to the future in terms of how we develop these epistemologies, these different ways of knowing? Thank you.
main focus in our educational system is on developing our rational faculties. Feeling is either ignored or discouraged. And of course, intuition and mystical experience are not recognized as valid ways of knowing within our educational system, whether it's at the, the level of um, K through 12 or up to advanced graduate um, education. And of course, there's been a major cost to pay for excluding these other ways of knowing. So one of the costs is that we have developed a very lopsided and, and um, skewed technological civilization that is um, dominated by digital thinking and, um, and a rational analysis of our relationship to the world around us um, that uh, overlooks the crucial importance of feeling our relationship to the world. And because we no longer, as a society, are educated to relate to the world through feeling our connectedness to the world, therefore we have developed technologies and social systems that essentially effectively exploit the natural environment um, in exactly the same way that the conquistadors exploited the native peoples when they first came to the shores of of what we now call America. Um, so we need to, if we're going to survive as a species, we need to make some very radical changes in our relationship to the natural world. And one of the, the fundamental changes we need to make is to um, equip ourselves by, with different ways of knowing to, to uh, cultivate these other ways of knowing, our feeling ways of knowing, our intuitive ways of knowing, as well as our national and, and senses, the rationality and our senses, that we need to cultivate all of those. Otherwise, we probably won't have much of the future. Um, the, the greatest error, it seems to me, in the relationship between modern, civilized, so-called civilized humans and the natural world is a particular story that we have invented that elevates us to uh, the... Um, the bumper sticker is that humans are special. <laughs> and as long as we have that idea that, uh, that our species is somehow um, uh, transcends and is above and has special rights that the, the rest of the species that make up our natural environment don't have, then we don't really stand much of a chance of making it through the next few generations. And we need to give up the idea that humans are special. Um, there's nothing, there's nothing, there's no special quality that humans have um, that gives us a right to exploit other species in the natural environment. Now, frequently when I make this point, um, somebody will object that they will, of course, there is something special about humans that, first of all, created the crisis. We have a species that has language and art and science and religion and philosophy and and so on and so on. That, that, that's what marks us out as different from the rest of the species in the natural world. And I would agree with that, um, that there's definitely something different um, about the human species. But then I would point out that there's something different about every species. That, uh, yes, we are special in the, in the sense that we have certain capabilities that other species don't have. But every other species is special in some sense because it has capabilities that we don't have and that other species don't have. Um, so every species in that sense is special. In fact, that's in some ways the definition of a species is that it has some special characteristics that make it distinct from 
other species. So yes, humans are special in that sense, but so is every other species special. And the point I want to emphasize is that there is nothing especially special about human specialness. We need to give up that, um, that sense of hubris, that this world is our God-given playground to exploit and do with as, as we see fit to um, satisfy our own desires and needs and longings. We have to act in relationship to the world in a way that recognizes we are infinitely interrelated with and interdependent with the environment that we come out of and that we will soon enough return to. So was there something else you, you wanted to say? Well, I wanted to um, ask you about violence. And oh, violence. Violence, yeah. yeah. I wanted to ask you about... Um, what do we do about the feelings of violence that um, have been exercised for so long? I'm thinking about the school shooting the other day, which apparently, to me, was somebody whose feelings, who, who could not deal with his feelings. So uh, I want to ask you about violence. What would you say about that? Uh, well, okay, so that, that's good. In some ways, that is a, a, a nice transition, a segue into talking about my um, recent collaboration right. with uh, Rodney King, the martial artist uh, who lives in Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, he had come across my book, Radical Knowing, some years ago, and um, was, um, in, according to his own report, he was blown away by what he read there in, in how um, the, what I was expressing about the relationship between um, embodied knowing and embodied intelligence um, was giving words to experiences that he's had through his years of training in martial arts and coaching in martial arts and had always been struggling to find the language to, to express um, his experiences and and lo and behold, when he opened up um, my book, he found exactly the language that he was looking for. So he contacted me and asked me if he could become um, a client of mine, um, if I would take him on as a mentoring student in consciousness studies. And of course, um, I did. And I was um, one of the first things I do with my clients is assign what I call an orientation essay or a foundational essay where I asked them to write about what it is that in, in their lives that gave them um, uh, an interesting or indeed a passion for, for consciousness studies. And in his essay, he, um, uh, his essay really blew me away because of his story. He um, writes about how, as a teenager, he was kicked out of his home by his alcoholic mother and uh, was left to fend for himself on the streets of Johannesburg. Um, and he got beaten up a lot. And in order to survive, he had to uh, defend himself, learn how to defend himself. So, um, cut a long story short, he studied karate and boxing and, and, and just through um, having to fight people on the streets, um, he learned and developed a particularly effective a mode of self-defense, and um, and in time he developed a reputation as a guy you just don't want to mess with, and he was hired by the 
nightclubs in Johannesburg to be their head bouncer and um, and word spread around pretty quickly and other people came to him to say, well, will you teach us your particular mode of martial arts because it seemed to be so effective. And in, in time, he built a studio where he was training other people and then that studio grew and he today now has um, studios in 15 countries around the world and all across the U.S. It's called Crazy Monkey Defense. Um, and so what I discovered in, in my communication with him, conversations with him, is that what motivated him was a sense that, um, that martial arts needs to be employed as a rite of passage, particularly for, for young men that he has noticed there are four stages that occur in, uh, in, 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 the, in the careers of martial artists, and he went through it himself. And the first is that people come to him to learn survival skills. They want to be able to survive, so they're motivated by survival. And after a couple of years of being trained by him, they, they've reached a certain level of effectiveness and expertise, and as he describes it, they develop a certain level of confidence, if not cockiness, at first, when they're first learning, they're open to following every instruction he gives because they really want to learn what it is he has to teach. But after a couple of years, they feel, okay, they can now handle themselves. And they're not so open and eager to follow his instructions. They kind of develop an attitude that, well, maybe they can take him on. And at that point, he realizes they've now reached, they've moved from survival to the next stage, which he called success. But now success... Um, is a, is a, has a you know, double-edged to it is because it can also be then uh, taken over by the ego. And what he notices, particularly in his young male students, is that they do get cocky, the ego takes over, and he finds that he needs to now, as their mentor, their coach, to um, slap them around a little bit to show them, no, they're not quite as good as they think they are and that there's more to learn. His point for doing that is to let them know that it, indeed, there is more to learn, but it's not just about learning better skills in, in fighting and self-defense. It's learning to move to what he calls the next stage, which is personal mastery, that now the opponent is not somebody outside that they need to fight with, that the opponent is their own internal attitudes and their own mind, in, in, in the word. And so the next phase in the training is what he calls the mental games, training them in, in the virtues of being a human being and the virtues of being a warrior and so they're now entering the warrior's path rather than the fighter's path and so when he was telling me about these different stages the stage of survival you move to success and then you move to personal mastery i asked him well is there a stage beyond personal mastery and he said yes there is i said what is that he said well i call it transcendence and i said well what what is that? What do you mean by that? He said, well, when you get to the, when you master the stage of personal mastery, the next point of development is to realize that now your job is to give back to your community. It's not, it's no longer just about personal mastery. Mm -hmm. It's about using and expressing your mastery in the service of your community. And that's where he is in his work. And so he has developed his programs to be of service to young men as a way of filling in a blank, a, a blank that's no longer available, a process that's no longer available to most young men in modern society, modern civilized society. Whereas in a 
went through rites of passage to become men in their communities that often involved um, some strenuous survival activity. That's no longer available. So he's using his martial arts training to create circumstances where this evolutionary instinct that, that the male of the species has, according to his particular view, and it makes sense to me, is that the males have evolved to be the protectors of their families, of their clans. And, um, and so their rite of passage is to grow into being that warrior. But that's no longer available in our society. And so that, that evolutionary urge then gets displaced into pathologies like violence in the mm-hmm. home, mm-hmm. where they may beat up their wives or their girlfriends. Are they getting to fights in bars and clubs? Are they getting into gangs and fight on the streets? And so this, this urge to be the warrior now gets distorted and comes out as, if you like, the gangster mode, the archetype of the gangster, uh, rather than the archetype of the warrior. Mm-hmm. So he's using his training to recalibrate people's relate men, particularly, although women do his work as well, but particularly men, to recalibrate their the relationship between their, their mind and their bodies based on developing a set of values that ultimately um, leaves them more integrated with, and, and more concerned about the well-being of the communities, not just themselves. So he and I have been working together to develop um, programs um, that we call, um, the two programs, one is called Awakening the Embodied Warrior, and the other is Embodied Mind Performance, that um, is used to train his trainers in, the, in bringing together the, the sage and the warrior archetype in his work. And we've just completed our first book um, that probably will be going to print in the next couple of months. So that's that work. I'm very excited by to, to be collaborating with, um, with Rodney because it gives me an opportunity to actually put into practice, to be able to apply these ideas on mind-body relationships that I've been developing over the years into a practical environment that can actually make a difference in the lives of, of um, other young men and, and, and women as well. So the violence is basically something that is built into the system. He makes the point that violence per se is not necessarily a bad thing, is that the warrior particularly needs to learn to match violence with violence, and then this is what he trains his people to do, and then to be able to switch off. As soon as you neutralize the situation, you then switch off the violence. What tends to happen in without the training that, that he gives, when people get into gangs or they get into fights in, in bars or, or in the home, and, and violence erupts, they haven't got the, the embodied presence of mind to be able to switch it off as soon as it's no longer needed. So in his particular worldview, there are occasions when, when training to be violent is the only way to counteract the violence that's coming at you. And as soon as you've, you've, you've mastered that situation, you then switch it off. It's no longer needed. That's an approach that um, is, is uh, to some people, counterintuitive. The idea that there is some positive value to training to be, to be violent. Very rarely is it ever needed, but there are occasions when it's needed. That if you are... You are met with an attacker who's intent on killing you. 
and, and the only way for you to survive is to be able to dominate him more than he can dominate you, and it's good in both circumstances to be able to draw on your own capacities and skills to um, use your, your, your violence to suppress the violence and then immediately switch it off. Well, um, I would say that uh, David Carradine didn't live in vain. <laughs> well, yes, yes, exactly, yeah. yeah. That's a good example. Yeah. 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 Shaolin. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Do you remember the name of that series? Oh, Kung Fu, I think. Oh, Kung Fu, of course. So, bless yeah. David Carradine. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, Christian, uh, we've, um, we've, we've, we, I wish we could talk a lot more and thank you of your, for your generosity of time. And, uh, so I'd like to ask you, uh, what would you like to say in closing to our friends who are listening? Thank you so much, Christian De Quincey. You're very welcome. I'm amazed at how quickly the hour went. <laughs> yeah, me too. Well, I'm not amazed. I'm just fascinated. Future Primitive is made possible by the Marian Institute. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting our work by making a tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.